Welcome to The Unsettled Garden, a podcast about the politics of gardening in Canada. I'm Alison Ralph, a writer and gardener living on the treaty lands and territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit. Today we're talking with Dr. Wendy Makuns genius an Indigenous woman of Cree and Métis descent. She is a professor in the Department of Sociology at York University. She's the author of Our Knowledge is Not Primitive, Decolonizing Botanical Anishinaabe Teachings. In addition, she's the editor of Plants Have So Much to Give Us, All We Have to Do is Ask. Welcome, Wendy Makuns. How miigwech. Glad to be here. In Plants Have So Much to Give Us, All We Have to Do is Ask, you edited it, your sister provided the botanical illustrations, and your mother wrote it. So yeah, what was it like working with your mother and your sister on this project? Well, my mother really felt that it was her, as she says in the introduction, she really felt that it was her duty, like she was completely, it was something she had to do to write and publish this information because when she worked with Kiwade no Kweban, that her teacher had not had the time to write the book. Um, she'd written some small press publications that were pretty much self-published, um, but and she has one larger publication, uh, Papui for the People, but that was published posthumously. But she didn't have the time to, um, you know, write this. So my mom really felt like she needed to do this. So she had been writing that book for a while, even when I was a child. She had been writing drafts of it. And when I was in graduate school, I decided when I was going to do my dissertation that I really wanted to do something with plants because I wanted to learn more from my mother. Um, you know, Key had already passed on several years before that. So I I wanted to learn something from my mother and I thought, well, this would be a great opportunity to combine my you know, PhD and learning from my mom. We could do something together. So I told her this and we started working together. And, you know, she was teaching me and I was writing, you know, stuff. And and then it was almost like it was a race. Like, like I, had to, I went to Colgate University. I had a fellowship over, a teaching fellowship over there. So I was in New York State and my mother was still in Wisconsin. And she'd call me up or she'd email me. I've got my cattail chapter done. I've got my bearberry chapter done. And she'd send it to me. And I'd be like, this is like a race. Like you're doing this in like a week or two. And I'm, I'm, I'm still on, you know, the first page, you know, of these chapters. So... And then I realized, well, really, you're writing this other book. And that, that's how my, my book came to be, was that hers was completely done. And it was, you know, looking at all these different plants. And I was like, well, we can't, we don't need two of these, you know. So, so I kind of changed what I was doing. And I concentrated on birch and cedar at that point. But she had this manuscript done. And she was, she was done before I was. And I hadn't even started looking for publishers for my text yet. So I started to talk to publishers, send it to publishers, with her, you know, we were, you know, I'd help her. We'd write a letter together and we'd send it off, that sort of thing. And, and I never said it was my work. I wasn't the editor mm-hmm. at that point. It was completely her. I was just finding the publishers for her and kind of getting the emails and, you know, we were sending the materials. And, and we got really horrific feedback, you know, from some of these presses, just really insulting really? stuff. Uh, some simple stuff like, this is too big to publish. Nobody want to publish something that's large or work this large. To things like, you know, why would you do this? And who, who would care about this? And why, you know, why do you have these Ojibwe words in here? And th- things wow. like that. And I've had all the experiences like that since, you know, we have a, a book right now that a children's book on the story of a, of my turtle who changed genders, you know, and we're, we're getting feedback from presses. It's in Ojibwe yeah. and English. It's, it's not 
it's not translated. It's literally told in two languages on separate pages. And people mm -hmm. are telling us that we could publish it, but we don't want the Ojibwe. So we, we've always gotten this kind of feedback. And I've talked to people that even in the 1980s and 90s, hmm. they were getting that feedback too. So that's been really terrible from these presses. Uh, everything from you know, more common presses that distribute more widely to academic presses. They're really not, you know, they, they're they really not doing what they're saying. You know, they're like, well, we have a land acknowledgement, oh, we respect Native yeah. scholarship, but you don't want the language and you don't want, you know, something that's actually, you know, coming from our tradition. So that's been really disturbing. Anyway, my book did get, was already on the, no, I guess it was published on the way to being published there. It had been published. And I had another book I was working on, Chimay Winja, and I was editing that with Brendan Kishkatan, who had a different name than Fairbanks. But And Dorothy Whipple was the author of that because she told us all these stories. So we were, we were doing that, and that was bilingual. That was a translated text. She was talking Ojibwe. We were writing both. My sister was illustrating it because she wanted people to understand what was being said, so there had to be illustrations. So we, we had that, and hmm. we were getting some of the same feedback. You know, why would you want this as a bilingual text? So anyway, I got this phone call at the university of, when I was in Eau Claire, and it was this University of Minnesota Press, and they, this man city had more recently started there and he really wanted to see the rest of this book this is just wonderful and I said well you you can't have it because this other press is going to publish it and I thought he was talking about Shemaine with Jacques because I'd kind of given up on my mom's book at that point I didn't know what to do and and he said no I, he said no no it's, hmm. it's it's your mother's book I'm after and I was like how I don't remember even sending it there I must have and and it'd been years you know it'd been a couple of years so anyway wow. I he goes, well, what are you yeah. talking about? And I'm like, well, there's this book, you know, because Maud Keg um, had published with a book that it was eventually published by them as well. And she was the older sister of, of Dorothy Whipple. So she had this bilingual text and now her younger sister had one. And they were like really excited. They're like, well, can we just see it? And anyway, point is that they ended up publishing that one too. We thought it was really cool that it was a twofer because the other press had been giving us, you know, run around again. <laughs> so that was wonderful that mom's book yeah. helped that. And they wanted to see the rest of mom's book. So... I didn't tell her because she had been so discouraged when she got mm. those other reviews. And she, I mean, she just kept saying, nobody wants to read this. Nobody cares about this. And she was really insulted. And she was getting insulted for the knowledge itself mm. and the people and the traditions and she, you know, that, you know, it come from. Yeah. So she was, she was really, that, that was it. She wasn't going to do anything, but I had a copy cause I'd been sending it out, you know, so I just sent it to him and I didn't tell her. And we were getting closer and closer and to them really wanting to publish it publish and publish. they wanted to see pictures. And my sister had already drawn some of them, but she hadn't finished because she'd quit when this wasn't going to get published. We just didn't see a point. So what we were doing was I, I, tell, I told my sister what we were doing that, you know, this place was probably publishing it, but we couldn't tell mom because I did not want her to get more depressed, you know. And so mm. <laughs> we started doing yeah. things like emailing her a photograph of what my sister drew and we'd say so if you were going to draw this plant which one of these would would look more like it to you and things like so she was approving these pictures yeah and she kept saying why are you yeah why are you torturing your sister you know why are you making her draw something for a book that nobody's reading reading you know and I said oh I'm going to use them in powerpoint she's like well you're not teaching this you know you're teaching language right now you're not doing plants and I was like well we just want them on file you know so she she played along with it. okay fine I want this one this one needs this she edited all the pictures approved them all and we got closer and closer we went through some you know editing of the book and everything and then we get to this, you have, here's your contract. We're going to publish your book. And I was like, oh shit, you know, because now mom has to know, right? 
So I, I called her up and I said, look, I, you know, the reason we were doing all this is because they're actually going to publish your book. And I know they are, and this is for real because I have this contract in front of me, but I, I don't feel comfortable forging your signature. Although that is something, you know, maybe I would have done under the circumstances. <laughs> so anyway, I, I, we got her the contract. She was just overjoyed and, you know, they had copy edits and stuff. So we went through the whole manuscript and did that. But that, and sure. I, I had already, you know, gone through all the Ojibwe language and done that editing of it before I think. You know, we were sending it to presses and I did have to scramble and do some more work with some elders and some of the plant names. And so at that point, I really was editing. I was even the person sending it. So that's how I became the editor yeah. um, because I you know, I was I was doing okay. the, the language and, you know, setting this up. So she was absolutely overjoyed um, when it was published, published. I felt really bad that she only lived another year after that. She passed on. But um, she did live to oh, see wow. it, it published. I just I feel bad with all these interviews because, um, you know, you really want to talk to my mom. Right. Because <laughs> she yeah. really she really does did this well, you know, and these were this is really her stuff, her stories, yeah. her her thing. Um since she's passed on, I have inherited a mountain of paperwork, including another whole book. And looking at some of it, I know now how wow. long ago she was writing drafts for that book. I didn't realize in the nineteen, you know, early nineteen nineties, you know, when I was playing on the beach at this cabin really? where she was inside writing this book. Because I remember the the I remember the cover of the book she was, you know, this blank book she was writing, and I didn't know what she was writing. You know, so now I, now I own the book because I've inherited it, and I I'm, I can go through it in the current book, and I, it's, my gosh, it's like, you know, you're, you're really seeing, I'm really seeing some word-for-word -word drafts here. So, yeah. Wow. So, but I, the mad part is that, you know, in, Indigenous studies and these publishers, you you say you want Indigenous studies. You know, we're telling you stuff is incorrect. Yeah. So you got to start publishing the real thing. And that's been, and the languages, I don't yeah. care if it has other accent marks and, you know, symbol. We don't have this in Ojibwe so much, but symbols you're not used to yeah. or spellings you're not used to or it's going to take yeah. up more room on the page. You need to publish it because that's what communities want. That's what the yeah. schools want. That's what the students want. And that's how you're going to get Indigenous scholars. So University of Minnesota Press, though, man, they are the greatest people. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I mean, and that is, it's such a perfect example of just the way that, you know, having the language be sort of written out of the stories and the books that you're writing is sort or, or at least that was the intent by some of these folks. It's a, just the perfect example of that colonial paradigm sort of dominating and trying to downplay the generations of indigenous knowledge. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, well, I'm, I'm really glad that you persevered because I have my copy of your mom's book and I'm waiting for your for a copy of your book. <laughs> and I was over the moon to find it. So thank you for, as I said, for persevering. Um, well, there's possible thing that's coming up right now is they might be making an audio book of it. So if you want to see that, I mean, go go call University really? of Minnesota. Yeah, they're, they're the ones that approach me. So we're, we're hoping that that will go through. So you call them up and express your interest if you want to. <laughs> I think an audiobook would make it really accessible. I, my I can my do mother that. loved audiobooks. Pers Absolutely. Personally, what I want, the reason I want the audiobook is I want the Ojibwe language to be pronounced properly because I'm a language teacher. So mm. I, I, I think an audiobook yes. could give us yeah. that opportunity. I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping to read it because I could do it. But I'm I'm also hoping that they're going to let me read the, you know, glossary. Because <laughs> I want. I want people to I would say the love word that. correctly. You know, I, I, it'd be wonderful that you could. And, and these professors who are teaching these these books, you know, there's Ojibwe words in them, and they want to say them really badly, um, but they, you know, they 
not necessarily they have recordings to do that. So this could be helpful for them, but also I, you know, personally, I, I, I prefer listening to a lot of stuff than reading it sometimes. So, um, you have a a audio audience here in the podcast, so push for the audio book. It could be really fun for all of us. So uh, one of the other pieces that your mother writes is uh, about sort of naming traditions and how naming is very important in the Anishinaabe worldview. Can you tell me more about that? The botanical beings, they they all have names and they all have talents and they all have histories and they all have homes. And of course, they're interconnected um, to all of us, to all forms of life. So it's really important that in you know, Anishinaabe culture that we're um, able to address this being, any being we're going to talk to for asking for help. You address that being um, with as many names as you as you know, and that hmm. perhaps makes that being more sympathetic to a human request. Or if it's another human, right, then you know you're you're being respectful to that elder or that person that you're speaking to, and for. Uh, the names of these botanical beings in many indigenous cultures, including um, Ojibwe and the, the people that call themselves Anishinaabe, that those botanical names are something that are really, really being lost. And in some communities, mm-hmm. uh, very few are still around. So that that's something that when we're working with language and culture revitalization, we really need to record as many plant and tree names as we can within our communities because we we need to know how to address these beings. It's harder to ask for help without knowing them. Um, Some research looking at other indigenous cultures, especially uh, looking at ones in the rainforest, there's been some research out of that area that's saying that when you don't know the indigenous name for a botanical being that that how that being is worked with, how that those beings' talents are also lost. And I think that's quite quite true. If you can't, if you don't know who's around you, you know, you, you may not know how to work with them. And um, then you, you're missing some very valuable cures, some very valuable healing um, within your community for that being. Well, and I can imagine too that you can, if you don't know, as you say, if you don't know who's around you, you don't also know the harm that you might cause in your work with with a particular plant or in a particular environment? Well, absolutely, you have to be able to identify the poisonous properties of of plants and trees as well. It's it's interesting because this question sort of started a bit of my journey to ask more questions about this particular area. It came from um, time in my my own garden. So in the last four years, I've uh, sort of planted native species in my front and back gardens. And, you know, I was learning all the Latin names for the plants. And I'm slightly embarrassed to say that it only struck me a few months ago that these names are all sort of colonized um, names. You know, they came from from European botanists. And as you know, as you've indicated, you know, European community or indigenous communities have had relationships with these um, botanical beings for centuries. And, you know, can you talk a little bit about um, sort of that, that challenge of having the European naming kind of overtake um, indigenous ways of, of knowing and interacting with the indigenous, with the indigenous um, traditions? Absolutely. My mother and my um, 
a namesake. Kiwi no Kray bun was my namesake. She gave me my Ojibwe name. That's why I have an Ojibwe name and not a Cree one. But both of them taught ethnobotany at the university level. And in their classes, they both, and, and in my, my mother's book, they both stressed the importance of proper identification for botanical beings and materials and because they were very concerned that the people they were teaching might inadvertently harm themselves or someone else or something poisonous. So they were in classrooms and it was usually fall, late fall and you know winter and they're teaching. So they couldn't they couldn't take people out to the woods and the prairies and the meadows and the swamps and all that to see these beings. So they, they were really stressing proper identification. And for both of them, using the scientific name was the non-indigenous scientific name was really important because they felt that then their students could look in at first print field manuals, field guides. In fact, both of them had those as required textbooks for their courses. And then later, um, my mother started pointing people to the U.S. Department of Agriculture's website because they had a really, have a really detailed website on plant identification, tree identification, and regions. And they also tell you what's endangered in the area. And that was really important to both of them to know that things are endangered. And if you don't absolutely need to work with this being, you know, let, let this being grow and be, you know, be the botanical being it used to be and don't, don't take it for a human purpose. So they were really, really they really felt that these non-Indigenous scientific names are important. When we were publishing the Plants of So Much to Give Us text, the copy editor, oh, I was working with this copy editor, and she contacted me on some of the names having changed, you know, and some of the plants have been reclassified. And I think that was about the time when I, I didn't know a whole lot of, of these non-Indigenous scientific names. I was really concentrating on the Ojibwe names because I knew they were being lost. And I was working with the, multiple elders to get the word list, the plant word list for that text. So I, I wasn't really pushing the non-Indigenous scientific names myself. And then when I, I saw how they changed <laughs> and how people can say, oops, we made a mistake. It's really this. I, I no longer saw them as like this great, perfect resource or naming process or something. So in my own classes mm. and when I'm in communities, I if I give a word list out, I usually give that name as well as some English common names, um, just because I worry that a handout, especially if it's print, you know, I don't know where it's going to go. So I want people to be able to use this handout and look in field guides, look online, you know, get, get the proper identification. So I'm, I'm still using that to a degree, but I prefer to just go out and find this being and, you know, show people what I'm talking about. So I luckily, when I was at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, they have a beautiful, you know, quite, quite extensive woods on their campus. So we just concentrated on plants oh, yeah. and trees that were there. And now I'm at York University in Toronto and they have, they have a small uh, pond woodsy kind of area. So here we're not doing as much with plants and trees right now, but we do have some stuff. So if we're going to talk about it, it's got to be something we can go see. So that's, that's what I've been doing. But for the, the colonized aspect of these, of these names, I mean, they do change, they aren't static and the indigenous 
peoples around the globe, right? This, a lot of this knowledge, especially if they're from the area that someone came from Europe and found the plant and took it back to like Kew Gardens or something. Uh, you know, we, we had a relationship yeah. with that being a lot longer. So we, our names in many cases make more sense. And then of course, if you're in our communities, you know, you, you don't need the scientific name for asking the being for help or, you know, praying with that being or to make connections between how our ancestors worked with and saw this being and, you know, how, how we want to revitalize that in our lives. So it was a lot to naming and it's, it's kind of complicated because of the aspects of, you know, an elder could know that their mother did something with a plant or that they used to do something when they were a kid with a plant, but they may not remember fully how that worked exactly because they haven't had the opportunity to work with that being and you know it could be decades you know so in in those cases you know we do need some of the current non-indigenous research on these beings because we don't have the knowledge anymore in our communities how to work with them so that there's that comes into play as well so it's, it's complicated i'm not on the this is all good and this is all bad side but if you're an indigenous person and you're in a mm -hmm. community and you have speakers who know some of these plants and trees, I really encourage you to get out there with a recorder and video would be great and have them talk as much as they can about that being in the language and have them give as many names in the singular and plural form as they can. That's it for The Unsettled Garden this week. Stay tuned for part two of my conversation with Dr. Wendy McCoon's genius in the next episode. I'm Allison Ralph. This show is produced by Lead Podcasting. If you like what you heard, be sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking for me, I'll be in the garden.